One lesson evident today is that achievements thought permanent can be overturned and rights that we think have been inscribed in the Constitution, guaranteed forever, can never be taken for granted. That was 2020 DuPont winner, Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. talking about his timely as ever historical four-part series, Reconstruction, America After the Civil War, that aired on PBS. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School and I'm joined today as always by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Well, we're recording this episode of the podcast just days after the historic 2020 presidential election. It's Thursday afternoon, November 5th, and as of now, we're still waiting on all those mail-in ballots to be counted before an official winner can be declared. Yeah, it, it all feels pretty surreal. It's been a stressful few days at the J School, to say the least. It has. I mean, for more than a few days, to be honest. Talk of this election has really dominated the news cycle of late. And this year, more than most, we've really been hearing a lot about voter suppression. Right. From the hours-long lines that some people have had to wait in just to cast their votes in the first place, all the way to the current controversy over mail-in ballots, with protesters recently gathering in front of ballot counting centers in Detroit to try and prevent votes from being counted. Like, that is just textbook voter suppression right there. Exactly. And while what happened in Detroit is definitely unprecedented, voter suppression itself is not new. So we really wanted to use this episode to add some historical context to that conversation. Because in reality, this question about who has the right to vote and more importantly, who doesn't have the right to vote, well, it dates all the way back to the founding of our country through the Civil War and Reconstruction all the way up until today. So for this episode, we'll be hearing from professor, historian, and filmmaker Henry Louis Gates Jr. about his DuPont award-winning PBS series, Reconstruction. In this series, he walks viewers through the history of a prosperous 12-year period for African Americans immediately following the Civil War, where they could not only vote, but where many freed slaves served in political office. It's a little-known time period. I'd never heard of a lot of the things they talked about. But as you'll learn in this episode, it was followed by horrifically racist pushback, including the rollback of rights for black people all across America. The conversation with Skip Gates was moderated by veteran journalist, author, and DuPont juror, Mark Whitaker. As always, it's an edited version of the conversation. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I was uh, honored to be part of the jury that selected Reconstruction for a DuPont Award. The second one that uh, Professor Gates, I'm going to call him, this is the last time I'm going to call him Professor Gates because we've known <laughs> each other for a long time. And anybody who know, has known Professor Gates for more than about five minutes gets to call him Skip. And Skip, I just want to start by asking you, I know you have a long association with PBS. You've done many documentaries. Why did you decide to go to do the Reconstruction documentary at this particular time? Well, first of all, thanks so much for your kind introduction. Thanks even more for awarding our show, the DuPont Award. You can't, the, the greatest award we could possibly receive that, and it meant um, 
It meant so much to me, particularly this year, because our main consultant is Eric Foner, who's a professor at Columbia, and his interpretation of Reconstruction, building on W.E.B. Du Bois's interpretation of Reconstruction, overturned the racist interpretation of Reconstruction that was enshrined by the history department at Columbia University. <laughs> so this is the, the whole narrative coming full circle. What was Reconstruction in a sentence? Mark, 12 years of black freedom followed by an alt-right rollback. Sound familiar? Eight years of black freedom under Obama. Nobody could have predicted that Obama would be followed by Donald Trump and we would see an upsurge of, of white supremacy and an alt-right rollback. So we, we have a, a four more series on social justice that we had in the hopper. And Reconstruction was number five. And we flipped the order. Because as I watched this terrible thing happening, Charlottesville, Mother Emanuel Church said, look, we are seeing something that happened in this country once before, and it happened after 12 years of black freedom. If we're looking for the roots of the tragedy at Mother Emanuel, this is where we have to start. The Reconstruction period is one of extraordinary excitement, a time when America could finally become that land of freedom that it had promised to be since the very beginning. Black people actually sat in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Poor whites and black people saw a common cause with one another. You're seeing this opportunity and imagining that will only get better. And looking back, what we know is those black folks had no idea of the cliff that they were heading towards. Reconstruction was the period following uh, the war between 1865 and 1877, when black people experienced more freedom and more rights than at any other point in their history. And historians like Eric Foner call it America's second founding. But I don't know about you, Mark, or you, Lisa, or anybody who's in the audience, but for my generation, most schools did not teach Reconstruction. They skipped from Lee's surrender at Appomattox um, straight to Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and the Civil Rights Movement, leaving a lot of students wondering why, if Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, why do we need a Civil Rights Movement? <laughs> you know, what happened? So after celebrating the triumphs that Black people made under Reconstruction, and you and I will talk about those, because they're not to be underestimated, we asked, how could Black men be given the vote in the South in 1867 and then nationally with the 15th Amendment in 1870, but then systematically be deprived of the vote 20 years later by state constitutional conventions throughout the South? In other words, think about this. How could America fight our costliest war of all our wars to end slavery and save the Union? at a, a, a cost of 750,000 lives, yet see Jim Crow established as a law of the land by the Supreme Court of the United States 31 years after the end of the Civil War. W.E.B. Du Bois, in his magisterial book, Black Reconstruction, put it this way, so pithily, so succinctly, and so poetically. Markey said, the slave went free stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. So understanding Reconstruction and its rollback 
is pivotal in understanding the history of race relations in America. Even black people don't know that much about um, reconstruction. Obviously, we have a lot of students on the call. We have some uh, of the professors. Just as you know, you're a scholar, uh, but you're also a storyteller who has been a storyteller uh, in the medium of, uh, of books for a popular audience uh, and, and also in documentaries. So tell us, as you approach this project and your other documentary projects for the, the, the large audience that you reach uh, through PBS, how you think about telling the story and what the elements that you need to do that are. Man, that is, that is such a great question. You do it inductively. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'll pick maybe 30 people and I'll write to them and I'll explain how the structure of a documentary works. I'll say, I'm writing to you because I need your list of crucial stories. What stories are indispensable? I started with Eric Foner because he is the king of reconstruction, the great professor at, at Columbia. But then you have to tell, you have to explain people one structural principle. The next time you watch a documentary, I don't care who it's by, Ken Burns, my good friend, um, any of our material, Stanley Nelson, just look at your watch. Every five minutes, the chapter changes. Every five minutes, there is a new story. So in an hour, you can tell 12 stories. That's it. So if you have four hours, that's 48 stories, 50 stories. So we'll get 500 suggested stories from our consultants. And then we have to boil them down to 50 stories that we tell over a four hour period, right? So you can't tell, there were eight major massacres between 1865 and 1877. You can't tell the story in reconstruction about each of those massacres, but you could pick one and make it emblematic so that you're, you're working as in a relationship of, of part to whole. And then often what you can tell is determined by what footage you can find. Now, obviously we're not gonna find footage of Frederick Douglass giving a speech, but we could find other kind of archival footage that enhances the way that we can tell a story. So sometimes it's just no way to bring a story to life or you're able to bring one story to life much more vividly than another story and you have to do what's what's good for the what's good for the film, but mine. I'm very lucky because being a professor, um, if I send an email to somebody, chances are they'll write me back right away. If one of our producers sends an email to the same person, they might not ever hear. You know, or one of my colleagues would say, "How much are you going to pay me if if I if I answer this?" So people have been very generous to me in terms of uh, making the production of our films, a collective enterprise. So I wanna come back and drill down on what I sort of see as like the three phases of reconstruction. So with reconstruction, we had to tell the story of the most amazing, remarkable, brilliant highlights. And what were they? The reconstruction amendments, the 13th amendment. So the 13th amendment freed the slaves. The 14th amendment established birthright citizenship and the equal protection uh, clause under the law. And then finally, in 1870, the ratification of the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote. 80% of the eligible black men in the former Confederacy registered to vote. Think about that. And they couldn't even read it right because it was illegal 
to teach enslaved people to read and write. So um, they, uh, they registered. And in 1868, they actually voted. Ulysses S. Grant won the Electoral College overwhelmingly, but he only won the popular vote for president, but just over 300,000 votes. 500,000 black men cast their votes mostly for Ulysses S. Grant. So black men had elected, in effect, through the popular vote, a president of the United States, and they did the, the same thing in 1872. And man, this, as far as I'm concerned, was sounded the death knell for Reconstruction. Now, there are a lot of books about Reconstruction and a, a, a lot of explanations of the cause for the end of Reconstruction. But as far as I'm concerned, this was the first manifestation of Black power. 2,000 Black men were elected to office at every level of government during the Reconstruction period. And this flipped, I think, not only the former South, but the North out as well. It was too much power too soon. So these gains, as they're starting to take off, didn't come without a cost. White supremacy took the form of American terrorism. And it emerged like a volcano in reaction to the new threat of the black vote. Lynchings, violence, rape, intimidation, and fraud. The Ku Klux Klan, the Red Shirts, the White League. There were eight major massacres at that time in Memphis, New Orleans, Camilla, Meridian, Colfax, Coshada, Vicksburg, Hamburg, 3,724 lynchings between 1889 and 1930, 80% of the victims black. And Mark, slavery ended, but what was, the, what was the main export in the United States through the 1930s? Cotton, somebody had to pick that cotton and they weren't gonna pay black people fair wages. So they invented a system of neo-slavery, which was called sharecropping. You know, we have this myth that as soon as black our enslaved ancestors were free, what'd they do? Um, go to Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, or <laughs> no. They would walk off the plantation, turn around and walk back and then sign away their life to their uh, former master overwhelmingly. But the most devastating thing of all was the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court ultimately rules in 1883 that the 14th Amendment does not prevent people from denying individuals access to uh, hotels, restaurants, because these are private locations and they can make that decision on their own. When a man has emerged from slavery, there must be some stage in the progress of his elevation when he takes the rank of a mere citizen and ceases to be the special favorite of the laws. The parting shot of Justice Bradley is an insult to all freedmen. Less than 20 years after the end of slavery, after the end of a system that had lasted for two centuries, the Supreme Court is talking about how laws against discrimination is somehow preferential treatment. The fact that they could pull that off meant that African-Americans were utterly and totally on their own when it came to law. Well, you can't just throw out uh, an amendment to the Constitution. It's there, right? 
So the 13th was there, the 14th was there, and the 15th was there. But you could circumvent them. So starting with Mississippi in 1890, each of the former Confederate states had a state constitutional convention in which they did, you know, what Ali called the rope-a-dope. I mean, they figured out ways to like scam black men out of the right to vote. Poll taxes, literacy tests. Literacy tests, you'd have to be a professor at the Columbia Law School in order to pass these literacy tests. Plus they were still intimidating uh, black men. And um, it, this is what the, the future governor of Mississippi said about the real reason for the Mississippi State Constitutional Convention in 1890. He said, there's no use to equivocate or lie about the matter. Mississippi's Constitutional Convention was held for no other person than to el eliminate the N-word from politics. Not the ignorant, but the N-word. And remember, Mississippi had been the first state to send a black man to the United States Senate, Hiram Revels in 1870. And this devious tactic of rewriting the state constitution spread all across the South. And I could give you one example of how dramatically effective it was. Louisiana in 1898 had 130,000 black men registered to vote. By 1904, because of their new state constitutional convention, that number had been reduced precisely to 1,342. And the last black man to serve in the United States Congress, George White, 1901, when that was it. He was the last of the Reconstruction congressmen to serve. And it, it would be a long, long time, as you well know, before another black uh, man or woman was elected from a former Confederate state. They wiped out the gains, and then, Mark, they wiped out the memory of Reconstruction by controlling the narrative of what had happened. So talk a little bit, talk a little bit more about that. I mean, a lot of kind of, you know, the negative stereotypes about Black people actually are fairly recent in our history and were kind of created in the wake of Reconstruction. So tell us about that. Absolutely. You know, you don't need a theory of, of white supremacy if you have people in chains. You know, it, there was a racist discourse from the Enlightenment about the nature of the African, which was drawn on to justify the enslavement of, of African people. But once black men had the right to vote, everything changed. Then that's when the rubber, as it were, um, proverbially hit the road. So that you, you've seen uh, Birth of a Nation, everybody has heard of Birth of a Nation. We tend to think of Birth of a Nation as being about the Civil War, but it's not, it's about reconstruction. It's all about how black men were elected in the South Carolina legislature, the Speaker of the House, the um, Secretary of the Treasury, the majority of the legislature was black in uh, 1868. And that whole racist film is about not only how incompetent those black men were, but venal. What was their uh, principal goal? There's this scene where they have their feet up, they're drinking whiskey, eating pork chop, and they all cheer. And you realize they've just passed the miscegenation law, that they have a right to marry white women. I mean, it is really, really um, racist. There was a woman she, she, her title was the Historian General of the United Daughter of the Confederacy. And her name was Mildred Lewis Rutherford. 
And she wrote a book called The Measuring Rod. You should read it. it, 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 it <laughs> it'll flip you out. They wrote it and it was guidelines for uh, deciding whether a textbook or a historical account about the Civil War or Reconstruction was really truthful. And it had about 20 principles to see if a text uh, conformed to proper guidelines. So I'm gonna read you three. One, reject a book that says the South fought the Civil War to hold her slaves. <laughs> reject a book that speaks of the slaveholder of the South as cruel and unjust. Reject a book that glorifies Abraham Lincoln, man. <laughs> they did not play. They sent this thing to all the librarians, to teachers, and it was at the same time those Confederate statues um, were being constructed throughout the South. So uh, the, this was the, our nation's first social media war. That's the way to think of it. Mm -hmm. The rollback of Reconstruction was accompanied by the creation of a lost cause mythology. And that was our nation's first social media war. And the most devastating part of all was the proliferation of tens of thousands of racist color images of black people as Sambos and Aunt Jemimas because of a technological innovation called chromolithography. Chromolithography had been invented earlier in the 19th century, but it became cheap in the 1890s. <laughs> Just perfect timing for the racist, horrible timing for our ancestors. So everywhere you looked, you could see a four color image of a beast-like black person with really black skin, thick red lips, um, wide eyes, doing what? Stealing chickens, eating watermelon. Often they would be posed in, in photographs with apes or monkeys. The whole point was subliminally to hypnotize America into seeing if they saw a black person like your great-great-grandfather or mine superimposed on what that person actually looked like was the fabrication of the black man or woman as a beast, as an animal, as ignorant, as vulgar, as a liar, or as licentious, licentious or as, um, you know, potential Gus the Rapist, who's the dark figure in, um, um, in Birth of a Nation. It was a full-pronged war against the freed people in order to put the genie back in the bottle. The genie had come out of the lantern in the 12 years of reconstruction. Black men had worked with white men in state legislatures to create interracial democracies. The first statewide public school systems were invented by these reconstruction governments. There weren't even public schools throughout the South. Only rich people could educate their kids. They created all kinds of infrastructure projects and it was just too much, man. And the rollback of reconstruction lasted far longer than reconstruction itself. And it continues to this day. And today's rollback is part of the reaction to the election of Barack Obama as the first black president. His eight years in the White House stirred up massive racial resentment as we saw with Donald Trump's um, campaign and which manipulated the tropes of white supremacy to his advantage. And that is why the history of Reconstruction matters because the problems that emerged during Reconstruction have never been resolved uh, in, in this country. And that's why I made the series.
So talk a little bit more about that. I mean, and not just the parallels, but the lessons. I mean, what are the lessons today for people who are concerned about uh, democracy, concerned about voting rights, concerned about racial justice, concerned about issues involving criminal justice system and the police, all the things that we have been part of our national discuss discussion in the last year. If you were to say, this is what Reconstruction teaches us, what would it be? The, if you think about it, the issue central to Reconstruction, citizenship, voting rights, voter suppression, terrorist violence, the relationship between economic and political democracy, continue to roil our society and our politics today, making the understanding of Reconstruction even more vital. Reconstruction inspired a violent racist reaction, which led with the approval of a conservative Supreme Court to the imposition of separate but equal Jim Crow as a law of the land only overturned in 1964 and 1965 with the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. One lesson evident today is that achievements thought permanent can be overturned and rights that we think have been inscribed in the Constitution, guaranteed forever, can never be taken for granted. A woman's right to have an abortion, a black person's right to vote. Who gets to be an American? Who gets to be an American? What is more controversial today than who gets to be an American. So our rights are fragile and we have the most important way that we can fight back is to encourage our fellow Americans to vote and to make sure that nobody interferes with their right to vote. And there are too many people trying, trying to do that. So um, uh, I think we have about 15 minutes left. So, and I think we have some questions. So Lisa, you've been monitoring them. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm going to just start off with one that refers back to something you already said, which was that you mentioned you had room for 50 stories in this four-hour series. What was the 51st? What was the one that, you know, the, the one you left on the cutting room floor that just killed you? Oh, man, that is good. See, that's a filmmaker thinking right there. There's this scene that I would have done when uh, the most devastating moment, I, I've just written a little essay about this for the New York Review of Books. The New York Review asked different writers to reflect on the coming general election. And so um, what I did, Lisa, was to think, I tried to imagine when Frederick Douglass realized that it was all over. When, you know, first they win the Civil War. Then the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. Then they get the right to vote, right? Then they elect 16 black men to Congress between 1870 and 1877. But when did they realize that it was over? You, you saw Khalil Muhammad in that clip said, those black people were heading for a cliff and they had no idea that there was even a cliff. It was in 1883, I'm convinced. And that's when the Supreme Court, as I said, so the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was unconstitutional. So what did black people do? The great leaders of the race, half a dozen, including Frederick Douglass, the man, um, uh, Blanche Bruce, who was elected to the Senate, um, they met in a church in Washington and they uh, gave speeches. I call it the funeral of the race. 
And if I could have staged that funeral, if you would have to do it with um, actors though. If I could, can you imagine the moaning and the groaning and it was in a church and just to, that all of the hope that you had under Lincoln, the culmination of the, uh, uh, the victory of the Civil War, the, that all of that had come crashing down. And within that itty bitty time, it was over. That's the scene I would have included without a doubt. But I did put Ida B. Wells in there fighting the hand of the racist conductor who tried to th throw who threw her off <laughs> out of the first class car <laughs> on a train because that's what the Civil Rights Act of 1875 did. It gave black people the rights to, um, you know, stay in hotels and ride on trains and whatever. And that lasted eight years and it was all taken away. That was so a great question. The next question is actually from Abby Wright. And I know that you had a team that did a lot of the archival research, and uh, but it's remarkable. It is the most stunning, breathtaking to see these photos, some of them for the very first time. And um, how, how can you talk at all about how that came about, how, where they came from? I've been collecting those images since I was um, a graduate student, really and a uh, young baby professor uh, at Yale. I, I, I studied history at Yale. Then I went to England, to Cambridge, and I got my PhD in English. Um, but I became fascinated with, and I wrote my PhD about the way concepts of race, how black people were written about, how Africans were written about during the enlightenment in the 18th century. And I realized that a lot of these racist stereotypes that would I was used to in the 20th century had origins in the late 18th and throughout the 19th century. So I began to collect these racist postcards, you know, lynching postcards, um, which are, you know, horrible and, and disgusting one at a time. I had a graduate student who had hundreds, thousands of these. So we began to duplicate them and put them in an archive. And we use images we have here at Harvard, as well as things that are in other collections. There's even a Jim Crow Museum at Ferris State University in Michigan. And I'd filmed there before and we got a lot of things from them. They, they are the most, there are images that are so disgusting that I wouldn't even talk about. When I remember going there before Obama's first term, they already had a cabinet of racist images of Barack Obama doing the most you know, hideous sort of, I mean, sexual toys and um, just things that you, I, could, I couldn't even believe that people would, would be so mean and nasty and, and so racist. You know what I tell my students? And this might sound pessimistic, but it doesn't, it's not meant that way. I say that under the floorboards of Western civilization, there are two streams. Right now, you can look down at your feet one is anti-Semitism and one is anti-Black racism. And they are there to be tapped into any time of the day or night. I know, uh, Lisa and Mark, you remember when Barack was elected, there were all these books, The End of Race. Remember that? That was like, and I, being a scholar, I went like, these people are, you know, this is crazy. It's a wonderful thing, historic, to elect the first 
um, black president, the first black uh, first lady, who were so noble and elegant and you know brilliant. But the idea that that was going to wipe out 500 years of racism in what is now the United States, that was ridiculous. It was crazy. It was wishful thinking. And believe me, it was all, not only was it there, even when uh, Barack Obama was elected, but it was like, uh, it erupted. It was like um, Mount Vesuvius or something. It drove some people completely mad that a black man and his wonderful wife and beautiful children lived in the White House for eight years. There is, yeah, <laughs> right. There's absolutely no question about that. And what were they chanting at, at Charlottesville? You know, when I was, I'm sitting here watching CNN and I go, what are these idiots chanting? You know, I'm like, what? They go, Jews will not replace us? I go, where are we, man? There's the Weimar Republic? You know, this is, where's Hitler? What, I thought that never again, right? But all those forces are there. Yeah. You cannot fight systemic racism that's centuries old with a quick fix. You can't do it through a T group. You can't do it by hiring sensitive trainers who come in to say Columbia and like sit around and say, well, did you ever say something bad about a black person? You know, and you go, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. I mean, all that is really important, but we are talking about ingrained racist structures, which will take a long, long time for us to obliterate. But anti-Semitism and anti-black racism, anti-black racism have a peculiar resonance in the history of the West that is enormously powerful and long-lived. That's why we need more interracial, interreligious, interethnic alliances to fight the, the evil, the, what is the, the, the greatest evil confronting our society? White supremacy. And whenever it rears its ugly head, we gotta smash it. We gotta smash it every time that, that uh, it does. And we can only do that if we join hands across uh, lines of a division like race, religion, sexual preference, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and I would, I would just add before we get to the next question that I think that requires a certain amount of understanding that not everybody comes to that conversation fully enlightened. Absolutely. You, know, you can't you just know, condemn, you can't just start by condemning people because you know they don't know the history or that you condemning them because they don't use the right language or they don't sort of understand the symbolism. You know, right. I, th I think you have to say it's enough that they're willing to engage in the dialogue and then try to enlighten them. I mean, if you know yeah. better. Right. Yeah, I mean, cancel culture, what's that about? You can't, we are in the university, we have to teach each other. There are all kinds of things that I don't understand about the history of Jewish culture, for example, or Japanese culture or whatever. And we are here to learn and to teach each other and to give each other the benefit of the doubt. You know, I have a favorite quote and it's from uh, our mutual friend, Brian Stevenson. Yeah. And he said this in an interview in Vox Magazine. And I, he says, I actually think the great evil of American slavery wasn't involuntary servitude and forced labor. The true evil of American slavery was the narrative we created to justify it. They made up this ideology of white supremacy that cannot be reconciled with our constitution, that cannot be reconciled with the commitment to fair and just treatment of all people. They made it up so they could feel comfortable while enslaving other people. 
Slavery didn't end in 1865, it just evolved. The North won the Civil War, the South won the narrative war. And I, I give that quote because it is the narrative war that we, we, we have to win. We just can't stand up and embarrass somebody because they say African-American and you want them to say black. I mean, give me a break. Um, you know, I, you go to the barbershop, my barbershop, black people, they're arguing about what to call each other. <laughs> and then we call each other long words with 12 letters of giving them. <laughs> they're one of my favorite courses that I teach um, at Harvard is a course about the debates that black people have had in the United States about what it means to be black. Black people have never agreed about what it means to be black. Mark, you know this as well as I do. If you um, like ask them, you sit, sit in the beauty parlor or the barbershop, people will argue all day long. There isn't a consensus. So all I'm saying is that protecting ideological multiplicity is very important component of, of democracy for me. The freedom to think, the freedom to speak, the right to disagree. And that doesn't make you a bad person. I mean, if you want to kill all the people who are black, that makes you a bad person. <laughs> you know, there are limits. But um, I think that we have to encourage dialogue and debate and not stifle dialogue and, and debate. Otherwise, people will nod and agree and then go home and, and hate you. And I think that's a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Claire Amari says, I really admire the way you've used genealogy as a window into history in finding your roots in African-American lives. Do you think telling stories about family history rather than military history, political history, et cetera, provides a perspective on history that people wouldn't get or accept otherwise? What I'm, um, what I realized is that uh, by telling history through genealogy, by tracing a person's family tree, we put a face on historical events. If you found out and if, if, uh, that your well, I'll give you an example for me. My, I found out because of this series that my um, fourth grade grandfather on my mother's mother's line, his name was John Redmond. He was a free black man. He would, at the time we would say he was a free Negro. He fought in the, for the Continental Army. Hmm. You know, they told me that and I go, what are you talking about? Wow. And he lived 30 miles from where I was born, Mark. 30 miles, and you know that's halfway between Pittsburgh and DC. All my family, I'm descended from three sets of fourth grade grandparents who were free, two sets by the American Revolution. These are black people, two sets by the American Revolution, and the other freed in 1823. I have a copy of the will of the white man of freedom. When he freed them, that, that pair, he gave them a thousand acres, and some of my cousins still own some of that land. Now, I invented Finding Your Roots because I'm trying to find the ethnic group in Africa that I'm descended from, when it turns out that all my, the roots I really wanted to find out were in a courthouse 30 miles from where I was born. And um, so it's amazing. It puts a face on historical events and, by, and that personalization process changes your relationship to that event. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks to Henry Louis Gates and Mark Whitaker for visiting virtually with our students. It was a terrific conversation. And um, let's talk a little bit about what's coming up for DuPont because we have some big news, right, Abby? Indeed we do. For the first time ever, 
the DuPont jury has selected a group of 30 finalists for the 2021 DuPont Awards, finalists that we will be publicly announcing soon. This is a terrific opportunity to really let the public know about some of the phenomenal work that's been done this year that we normally would keep under wraps because we would only publicly announce the winners and lets us spread the wealth around. Exactly. I mean, these finalists model excellence for the profession, but they also help show students of journalism and the general public um, just the critical work, the important work being done in the public service by journalists. Some, and in this year in particular, who are risking their lives to do this kind of work. Yeah, so we're going to have the announcement of the list of 30 finalists coming up soon, and keep an eye out for it. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from Arcelia Martin and Rose Gilbert. And as always, our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.